Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is uh, Friday. So happy, oh, well, it, it, it's not just Friday. It's the 9th of October. So happy birthday to my beloved husband, Jim. Uh, today's his birthday. So there you go. Happy birthday, honey. Um, I'm going to talk this morning. I'm going to lead off a little bit about a conversation about communication. If communication is going to be effective, then you and I have to have a shared understanding of the meaning of the words that we are using with one another in our discourse. So when the meaning of commonly understood words begins to morph or change, we we need to take notice. We need to say to one another, uh, the word rainbow actually still means what it was defined to mean by God, uh, and it does not necessarily mean what others might try to tell you that it means today. Consider how the culture shifted pretty dramatically when a former president of the United States played fast and loose with the meaning of the word sex when he declared, I never had sex with that woman. Sex has meant something very different in our culture from that day. So when we use words today, we often have to define them. And when we hear someone use a word that we that we know could mean a multiplicity of things, depending on your perspective, then we need to ask that other person to tell us how they understand the term that they are using and how they are using it. That's actually the story behind the headline of the Associated Press style book, which brings us uh, to the headline of the day. The AP style book issued new guidelines last week on the use of the word riot. And I've waited a week to talk about this because I wanted to have a story to which I could point where the word riot should be rightly used, but is now not rightly used because the AP style book now says don't use the term riot. The article I would be pointing to is an article um, about what is going on in Wisconsin, Wisconsin residents uh, experiencing riots in real time. I'll use the term because I'm not bound by the AP style book, at least not in this minute. Um, And yet you are going to read articles. You are going to hear journalists talk about what's going on on the streets of Wisconsin, and they are going to they are going to avoid the use of the word riot. Why? Because the AP style book guides journalism. It guides communication departments. It guides colleges and universities. Most institutions actually use the AP style book in their communication. So what does the AP style book now say? What is the guidance related to the use of the word riot? Well, on the 30th of September, here's what the AP style book guidance says. A riot is a wild or violent disturbance of the peace involving a group of people. The term riot suggests uncontrolled chaos and pandemonium. Focusing on rioting and property destruction rather than underlying grievances has been used in the past to stigmatize broad swaths of people protesting against lynching, police brutality, racial justice, going back to the urban uprisings of the 1960s. Unrest, unrest is a vaguer, milder, and less emotional term 
for a condition of angry discontent and protest verging on revolt. Protest and demonstration refer to specific actions such as marches, sit-ins, rallies, other actions meant to register dissent. They can be legal or illegal, organized or spontaneous, peaceful or violent, and involve any number of people. Revolt and uprising, again, here they're suggesting words to replace the word riot. Have you noticed that? That's what they're doing here. Don't use the word riot. Instead, use words like unrest, protest, demonstration, revolt, or uprising. So the last sentence, revolt and uprising both suggest a broader political dimension or civil upheaval, a sustained period of protest or unrest against powerful groups or governing systems. So what the AP Style Book is saying is use these other words, amplify them using adjectives if necessary, um, but don't use the word riot. And you say, so what? It's just the AP Style Book. Who cares what the Associated Press is talking about? How much influence do they actually have? Well, the short answer is a lot. Very nearly every journalistic and media outlet, every college and university, every department of communications, advertising and public facing communicator of every variety uses and is legally bound by because of because of the documents that are put into place in institutions. We are bound by the AP style book, which now says we can't use the term riot when describing a riot. What's happening on the streets of America? Like, let's say, last night in Wisconsin. Words matter. I'm going to talk with Matt uh, Hawkins this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more about the vice presidential debate. We'll be right back. Matthew Hawkins is joining me now. Uh, I'm going to describe him as a public theologian. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He served in Washington, D.C. He understands the intersection of faith and political speech, faith and political action. Uh, And so I love to talk with him about, well, the unfolding stories of the day. Matt, welcome back. Thanks, Garmin. What a kind introduction. I, I sometimes mm. understand the intersection of I just tweeted politics. out that you and I were going to talk about ex- existentialism, which we're not, oh. but if, if people are only on Twitter and don't tune in, then they don't know that we didn't talk about it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's okay, funny. we might. We might. We might get to existentialism, or we might, we might at least get to existential questions. Um, it's, let's, it's, all, it's all existential. Probably. That's exactly right. Let's, um, let's talk about well, what the wonderful vice- commentary. Wonderful commentary on the uh, on the AP story stuff. Thank you. Uh, so has the AP sti- has the AP style book guided your uh, public facing communications in the past through organizations, oh, and institutions? Yeah, right. We are we we are bound oh, yeah, by no it. Question. Um, yeah. No, not to say there isn't uh, there there isn't debate or uh, people move in lockstep, but uh, even among Christian, uh, I say NGOs, non governmental organizations, nonprofits, um, uh, particularly if you're using uh, folks who are kind of professionally trained public relations folks, uh, they will uh, frequently reference the AP style guide. Um, it's not you know it's not required, but it is definitely influential. And uh, if you're anyone working in uh, communications in a particular in a uh, professional context and uh, press releases and and those kinds of things. A- AP Style Guide is a is a go to resource. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So no more use of the word riot. Okay, um, which I'm going to keep saying over and over again, yeah. so that mm-hmm. people get the point. Uh, the vice presidential candidates. Um, yeah. 
sort of faced off, not really, um, but faced off in a debate. Um, what what were your maybe maybe a couple yeah. of your takeaways, uh, particularly on the life issue? Yeah, particularly on the life issue. Um, so I watched the debate and uh, glad it was uh, a far more of a conversation and uh, some uh, you could actually glean some helpful information compared to the first presidential debate. Um, so on the topic of life, um, I think I have two basic, I had two basic reactions. Um, now on the one hand, uh, both vice president Pence and, um, Senator Harris, uh, reiterated their commitment to their respective camps. Um, Pence being pro-life and uh, Harris uh, being pro-choice, but it was clear to me that neither of them wanted to answer the question about, what a post-Roe world should mean, legally speaking, for their respective home states, uh, Indiana and California. And that that stuck out to me. So on the one hand, um, so I can kind of look through this through the lens as, you know, of a kind of a political strategist here and recognize that uh, they're using debate time strategically uh, to whatever they think their priorities are in that particular moment. And I think you could, you know, you could understand that uh, they kept you, they, the pattern throughout the debate was they kept going back to earlier uh, topics and not and typically not initially <laughs> answering the, the question that the moderator posed to them uh, outright, which is something politicians do uh, frequently. Politicians are going to say what politicians are going to say, um, which was uh, pretty common in, in D.C. Um, at the same time, uh, this intro, this interest, this kind of this uh, hesitance to talk about what a post-row world should look like for their particular states was instructive. Um, if I'm a strategist for the vice president, I think he, I think they know that they've got the pro-life vote locked up for this election. Uh, quite frankly, uh, folks really don't have a whole lot, a whole uh, anywhere else to go if they're prioritizing their pro-life vote um, and if they want to choose between Republican and Democrats. And I think uh, I think they know that. Um, and so he could spend more time advancing some other ideas, which because they're trying to get kind of more, uh, you know, Americans who supposedly uh, are not decided yet. And and he can uh, defend the president, which is usually the worst. The vice president's role is to defend the administration and and to uh, represent the uh, administration the best way possible. So I don't think he really thought they needed uh, to go, you know, to really uh, defend the pro-life thing hard. Um, in that particular moment, a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of us, which wishes, wished he would have. It's not that he didn't, but it could have been more, a little more forceful. robust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, robust. Um, and I think you know, for Mer- Republicans, look, with the uh, nomination of Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court, I think on the Republican side, there's a little bit of a dog catches car moment here. Uh, you know, we're on the verge of actually having a Supreme Court that could actually be the first time that the court could meaningfully um, confront Roe v. Wade. And I think for the Republicans, uh, a lot of them haven't thought through or thought past uh, this particular moment and and getting um, and I think I think you're seeing some of that hesitance um, in folks. Um, uh, to discuss. Do you see that too? Yeah, I was actually thinking um, there that so the president had some kind of treatment for COVID. Um, yeah. The treatment was tested in cells that were derived from fetal tissue. Um, 
I'm not sure when we start having the just how pro-life converse, the, the, the just how pro-life are we conversation. Right. I am I am really not sure that uh, most um, most people in America have thought all the way through the implications of uh, of a pro life conversation. Have we thought That's all right. the way through to not only um, the question of would I have an abortion? Like you know, most people have thought about that. Um, yeah. They have they have thought a little bit about whether or not they think other people should have abortions. But have they thought all the way through to would I um, would I say I, I am denying I am declining a particular treatment for COVID-19 because that treatment is derived from yeah. the uh, from the use of cells that are derived from fetal tissue um, and government research based on aborted fetuses. Yeah. Would I go that far? And, you know, and then we're going to start splicing uh, hairs here and we're going to say, well, are we sure that it was fetal tissue that was aborted? Maybe it was fetal tissue that, you know, was con- contributed in some other way. Yeah. Um, we have to get to the place where we can say with conviction, life, uh, you know, I am pro-life from conception to natural death. It influences whether or not I would pump my mom full of morphine. Um, to bring about her untimely death because of her pain level, it it right. influences whether or not I would accept a treatment, a drug or a drug derivative that is based on research um, that where fetal tissue was used. And I mean, that's how far we have to go if we're actually going to come to the place where we say in the United States of America, abortion is illegal under every circumstance and we are pro-life from conception to natural death. And I am pretty sure we're not there yet. We're definitely not there yet. And yeah. So when you say, boss, you know, catching the, yeah. you know, catching, it's the dog catching the, catching <laughs> the, the car. The bus. Yeah, they didn't know yeah. what to do with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah I think we're, we're at that moment. Um, my, my, bo- my former boss, Richard Land tweeted last night that, you know, it doesn't uh, overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't settle it. It goes to the States mm-hmm. and you'll have a patchwork of differing uh, abortion laws. And if we're pro-life, uh, you know, if it's the human rights um, issue that we really say it is, just kind of like you laid out, um, we can't be content to let uh, the states um, decide uh, and have it kind of be a patchwork, uh, kind of like the Civil War was with uh, with slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to have to be a federal matter some, se- somehow. I'm not necessarily convinced um, uh, a, a human life amendment uh, to the Constitution is, is necessary to do that. I think you could do it uh, through some kind of civil rights, um, civil rights act kind of thing. But uh, that's we're 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 not even there. Um, yeah. There's there's I don't you know there may be a human life amendment. There's a human there's verbiage for a human life amendment. Um, but yeah, as far as consensus, we're definitely not, definitely not there. All right, we have to take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to uh, talk with you. Um, well, we're going to continue our conversation. We got we got a lot to talk about with Matthew Hawkins. Um, we'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins, we are going to continue our conversation about life, and we are going to continue our conversation about how we understand that term and its parameters. So let me lift up this Tammy Duckworth um, story. Yep. So we have a Democratic U.S. senator who um, has spoken very openly about giving birth at age 50. 
Um, mm-hmm. She has two daughters, five and two, both of whom were conceived through in vitro fertilization. Um, mm-hmm. And she has now, Senator Tammy Duckworth has now issued a letter to her colleagues, particularly her Republican colleagues, Um, asking them to reconsider their support for Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett in light of the fact that, um, well, she's Catholic, let's start with that, um, but that she has been involved in an organization that opposes some types of fertility treatments, including IVF. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, uh, talk about existentialism. um, Mm -hmm. See, this is is where I thought we could bring up the existential question. Go ahead. Look, I, I'm going to I'm going to preface this with a couple things. Uh, this is a sensitive issue um, for a lot of reasons. Um, I've the the uh, Duckworth reaction to Amy Coney Barrett's position on IVF is kind of like a reaction I, I've received um, in a personal context um, when we uh, try to explain the ethical uh, critiques of uh, IVF and other uh, assisted reproductive technologies, art for short. Um, And let's recognize that we probably have listeners right now who have either used IVF. um, uh, Oh, we definitely do. We definitely do. I know people I know people listening right now who have whose children have been conceived through IVF. So yes, yeah, absolutely. As do I. I also yeah. know I, I also know, Matt, that when I'm asked to pray, like I have had yeah. to have a conversation with a woman who wanted me to pray for, you know, her children's successful IVF treatment. I gotta tell yeah. you, that's hard for me. And I have to yeah. stop right then and have a conversation. I I, I it that's hard. It's really yeah. hard. Yeah. And and we maybe have listeners at this at this point point in history who were conceived out of and, Absolutely. and, and born out of that process. And we celebrate um, and life I, any way it comes. Let's exactly. start with that, right? We celebrate yeah, exactly. life any way it comes. Yes. And so we're, we rest in this tension right now. Uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, lately, and uh, those who are familiar knows that Kitty he, he was uh, a kind of a minority report in a lot of situations, and rest, there's always this tension. Uh, he wouldn't go one way or the other. Uh, and so we, we celebrate right? The blessing of childhood and the desire for children. Those are good things. Uh, on the other hand, we also desiring to live our lives um, uh, according to ways that honor our creator and his design for our lives and honor life. Uh, we need to apply those ethics in medical technologies also, right? And so there's this tension here uh, in, in a broken world. And so what uh, Christians and Americans broadly need to understand is that a number of uh, these reproductive technologies um, bring those good things into contact, conflict with one another, right? Um, and so what clinics often don't fully inform clients is about the ethical dilemmas that they're, that they're sure to face. And I've seen up close, uh, with personal friends of mine who, uh, against some counsel went into the IVF process, um, what in a a clinic who claimed to be pro-life. And then it's a procedure, it's a process that you don't really fully understand the ethical implications and the decisions you're going to have to make until you turn a corner and can't turn back again. Um, namely, um, with the creation of embryos. So as pro-life people, we believe that uh, fertilization is when life begins. Um, at least that's the only objective uh, way to look, of, look at it. You have the DNA that is not the father and not the mother uh, present. And so f- embryos that are created are human life uh, and at whatever stage they're in. 
And, uh, you know, you talked about earlier in the earlier segment, you know, what, what is our capacity? What is our concern, um, about, uh, you know, using science and testing things, uh, with, with embryos, um, or fetal tissue, uh, this is in the same category of ethics. And, uh, this, the challenge is, um, the embryo creating procedure is really, um, it's really expensive and um, it's it's complex, and uh, to do so, clinics typically um, typically fertilize multiple eggs, and so you have multiple embryos that end up being frozen uh, when they're not implanted, and so you have human lives, human beings who are implant or who are frozen indefinitely. Um, now, a lot of people plan to implant all of them, uh, and that's you know a wonderful impulse. Um, but we what the risk then is you're kind of presuming upon the future a little bit, right? Whether it's one year, two years, three years, you're kind of presuming a lot about what life is going to look like um, in your family uh, before that happens. And so now we're in a situation where the U.S. has about a million, one million frozen embryos. Those are frozen human beings um, that, uh, you know, are in varying, varying levels of risk. And, uh, look, Amy Coney Barrett's position was not, I don't think, uh, it, you know, Duckworth, uh, spins her position. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think Amy Duckworth's position is not that IVF, uh, uh, physicians, um, should be criminalized, but the disposal of, human frozen embryos should be criminalized. That's her position. And that's not uh, the way Duckworth puts it, that uh, Amy Coney Barrett thinks that her her girl her girls uh, should not be living. Uh, that's a, a really unfortunate spin. Um, but I think it, you know, I think it reflects the personal take on these things that uh, we have to navigate through with people. Um, and we gotta, we gotta disciple church members before they're in this position because they're, once they're into the, uh, the sales pitch of the IVF clinic, um, I, I, I haven't seen anybody turn back, um, once folks are that close to it. So I've got uh, one thing to read from a, uh, from a listener and then Matt, we gotta, we gotta wrap it up because I gotta talk with Chris Martin about why my show's not as good as the Joe Rogan experience. But, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So uh, we have a listener who said, my friend just adopted one of those embryos. She got pregnant and she Fantastic. has now had the baby. So I just do want to celebrate that there are pro-life approaches. That's a thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a thing. You can pro-life adopt frozen embryos. Yeah. You can. You can. All right. Uh, Matt Hawkins, thank you as always so much for wading into uh, waters that not everybody wants to uh, wants to engage in conversations about. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Have a great weekend. Thanks. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back. So sometimes you read something that one of your guests uh, has just posted and you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to talk with that person about that. That's what happened last night when I read Chris Martin's Terms of Service blog in which he outlines why the Joe Rogan experience is the number one podcast in the world and how, you know, broadcasters who have interview-based programs might learn from Joe Rogan. So I took some notes on what Chris Martin wrote, and now I have some questions for him. He's up next. He's a content marketing editor and Moody Publishers. He's the author of Terms of Service, a newsletter about social media and its effect on the world, and he's with me next. We'll be right back. Sometimes what we say to our kids isn't what they hear. I mean, we're both speaking English, but to them, it sounds like gibberish. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. 
Most parents start out with very good intentions. They want to guide their kids with wisdom. They want to help them when life gets hard. They want to make the most of a teachable moment. But guess what? Your teen might be missing it. Your son or daughter doesn't always hear those good intentions. Instead, they hear a lecture or a judgmental attitude. As parents, let's check to make sure we're not hypocritical. And second, let's help our kids know that whether or not they understand us, we want the very best for them. There's more from Mark Gregston on the Parenting Today's Teens website. Get helpful tips for moms and dads when you visit ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Chris Martin, he is content marketing editor at Moody Publishers, author of Terms of Service. It's a newsletter about social media and its effects on the world. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. In an effort to follow your advice, uh, I am uh, leading off with Joe Rogan and his podcast today. So um, first of all, let me say to my listeners, the Joe Rogan experience may not be one um, that you want to engage in because he does (laughs) use language that uh, we would not consider appropriate in in a Christian conversation. However, uh, it is like, uh, without question, the most popular podcast in the world. And so talk with us about um, what makes the Joe Rogan experience so great? And then prepare yourself because I have some off-the-wall questions. <laughs> of course. So uh, I wrote recently one of my one of my favorite parts of um, the weird nerdy habit I have of kind of studying social media culture, but also just like internet content culture in general, is looking at the most popular content in the world and see and and trying to figure out, read the tea leaves, as it were, as to like what. Why is this content some of the most like why is Joe Rogan's podcast the number one podcast in the world or why is this YouTuber so um, so popular like what are the things that a long time ago because this is the kind of nerdy stuff I do for fun I like watched a handful of videos maybe 10 videos from the top 10 YouTubers in the world and was trying to figure out like what are the what are the lowest common denominators that the most popular makeup YouTuber in the world does and the most popular video game YouTuber in the world. There are some things that they both do despite their genres being different and figuring out what those things are is kind of a fun little uh, hobby for me. So a while back I started poking around the Joe Rogan experience podcast because it's so clearly like no one, there are so many different metrics and statistics that go into like, podcast listeners it could be how many subscribers are do you have or how many downloads do you have and it would be hard for most people to make a case for oh i'm the eighth most popular podcast in the world outside of looking at like the itunes top 10 list that's about as close as you can get well there's no nobody nobody can contend with joe rogan for without a doubt being the most popular podcaster in the world um a little bit of background on him quickly he's kind of i call him a, a modern entertainment renaissance man but he he used to host the show Fear Factor back in the day, which is how mm-hmm. I first learned of who he was because that show was on when I was in middle school and would have loved watching a weird show like that. But he also um, calls a lot of MMA fights, like UFC fights. So a lot of people know him like he's a commentator for those. He, a lot of people – because he used to be a, 
he is a martial artist himself, but used to be like a fighter himself as well. He's also a stand-up comedian, so some people know him that way. So he is really kind of like a modern entertainment renaissance man, but he will go down in history, I think, remembered for this podcast, which just started as kind of a, uh, you know, just hanging out, talking with some friends back in like 2008 or 2009 <clears throat> before podcasts were really super popular. And he's just been doing it for a long time. So obviously one of the things that makes his podcast one of the most popular in the world is that he was first, not first, but early. He's nearing 1600 episodes. Most podcasters I know haven't gotten to 160 episodes before they've just decided to call it quits. So um, he's nearing 1600 episodes. So he's just been putting the time in. He's a pro at this at this point. Um, but I think there are three very quickly. I'll just run through the three things that I think make his podcast super good. Again, um, he like you said, he uses a lot of uh, crass language and a lot of the topics he discusses with people are like, I have to skip through cause they're just uncomfortable conversations that I don't want to listen to. Um, but when he has a celebrity on that I'm aware of, I don't listen, like I'm not an avid listener, but when he has Kevin Hart on who I'm aware of, cause I've seen movies of him or seen him do stuff before, or he had David Blaine on a while back, the famous illusionist slash magician. I'm like, Oh, that person's interesting. I might, I might watch that because he the other thing, too, is he streams all of his podcasts on YouTube so you can watch them uh, live or, or formerly live. I don't think he does it live anymore that he has this deal with Spotify, but you can watch the like watch them discuss uh, and have an hour long interview, three hour long interview, depending on who it is. <laughs> uh, or you can listen like on your phone, like you listen to any podcast. Um, but the three things that I think make him a tremendous interviewer are these one. Uh, he's relentlessly curious um, this is probably the hardest ingredient for someone uh, like you or others to emulate because it kind of is innate. Uh, it, you just have to be a curious person. I think you are, Carmen, for what it's worth. But I no, think I a checked lot of this people, one off. I checked. I checked uh, yeah. that one off. I am I think you're really curious. I think, yeah, no question about it. I think you're really it. good at this. Yeah, um, but he, the the host, the host plus guest podcast format can get kind of tired if you maybe ask the same people the same questions or ask people questions that they get asked all the time. But if you ask them some questions that maybe no one's ever heard that person be asked before, like I was watching him interview a comedian the other day who I was aware of and he asked him, they got onto a conversation about like whether or not aliens are real. I've never heard that conversation between these people before. And I'm like, that's a really interesting conversation. Is it like relevant or insightful? Not really, but it was kind of a fun, interesting. So anyway, he's relentlessly curious. Second, goes into this, it's clearly related to the first, is he asks a bunch of off-the-wall questions. Mm -hmm. So he was interviewing uh, a comedian that I used to watch growing up, and he asked him uh, if he if he believed in aliens. On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your certainty that aliens are real? And they just kind of got off the beaten path and talked about something that, that no one would have said, man, I really want to hear that comedian talk about if aliens are real. But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be interested in that. I, I saw him interview um, Kevin Hart. Like I said, one time that was one that I watched and I've never, I've never been like a huge fan of Kevin Hart, but I'm like, Oh, I know who he is. So I'll watch this and see if it's interesting. And he, I thought Kevin Hart was just kind of like a goofy stand-up comedian who probably, you know, just got famous cause he was really funny. Um, but the, when he interviewed Kevin Hart, he was talking about Kevin Hart was talking about, his devotion to his family and the ways that he's t made serious sacrifices in his career because of stuff going on in his family. And then the sort of like the hard work and dedication that he's put in, it was a super interesting conversation just because 
Joe Rogan was willing to ask Kevin Hart some questions that went beyond what's your favorite bit you've ever done or what's your favorite uh, stadium to have ever performed it. You know, some of the things that maybe Kevin Hart's been asked, um, he went like super personal and asked some questions mm-hmm. about his family and how his fame affects his family and stuff like that. The third and final ingredient I think that makes Joe Rogan just a really good interviewer is a little bit of what I just said. He gives a refreshed view of familiar celebrities. So on the David Blaine interview, David Blaine has always maintained a very like tough guy, um, uh, like guy you don't want to cross in an alley kind of persona because he's put him his oh body gosh to... until he held those balloons up in the air and the whole thing yeah. was really about his relationship with his daughter like oh my if you watch so that thing your yeah. heart is like peeding out of your chest because there's that little girl watching yeah. her dad holding on to a clump of helium balloons floating over the Arizona skyline and you're thinking to yourself Please don't die because yeah, she's exactly. right there watching. Right. You're just like right. anyway. That was and, and this. I mean, this yeah. is a dude who like froze himself for like a week or right. whatever. Like it's like right. put himself through all kinds of yeah. Like, fatherhood tough... has changed David Blaine, and like that's yeah. a that's an interesting conversation to have. Right. And so the the, yeah. the interview that I watched with Rogan and David Blaine, and I was looking at the comment section. The comment sections on YouTube are always so fascinating to look at because everybody was saying like, "Wow, I never knew this guy like had a heart or was like mm-hmm. goofy mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. just that he he really. I mean, he's very much not a normal dude, but he he seemed like <laughs> a normal dude you could have a cup of coffee with, and like totally. that's what Joe Rogan does. He he makes people who seem totally untouchable and otherworldly. Seem like the kind of person you could sit down and have a cup of coffee with, or in his case, you know, have a drink with, or or whatever. Um, and and it's that makes it super engaging and makes it just feel like you get to be a fly on a wall on a com- with a conversation between two really well known people, and it's a really profound experience, I think. Okay, because this is live radio and not a podcast, um, we have to take a very brief break. This is Chris Martin. Um, And we are talking about why um, there aren't millions of people listening to me, but there are millions of people listening to Joe Rogan. I don't know. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Uh, Chris is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. Uh, He is the author of Terms of Service. That's actually where you can find his reflections on the Joe Rogan experience. You can also find what we're going to talk about next, which is the social dilemma we all face. We'll be right back. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Chris Martin. Chris, let's talk about the social dilemma we all face. Yeah, uh, there's a new documentary called The Social Dilemma. Uh, It's on Netflix. And uh, I saw that it was coming out and I watched like the trailer or something and it looked very interesting to me. And then I had a bunch of a bunch of friends who were watching it around when it came out, I think came out mid-September or so. And they were all texting me saying like, hey, have you watched this? Yeah, have you like this? It's everything you're talking about. I'm like, OK. So I uh, – Susie and I, my wife and I, uh, two weeks ago maybe, uh, sat down and and watched it. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's like – it took me a while to watch it because I bathe in this stuff all the time. I write – I mean it's what I write about my newsletter. I just got finished writing a manuscript for a book around a lot of the – content from the documentary and i was like do i really want to spend two hours on a friday night you know watching more of this stuff <laughs> um so anyway i finally did and uh it was like i was sitting in my chair in my living room watching this documentary and every time they'd have one of the experts come on who either has worked in social media and was kind of lamenting what they would built 
or they had people who had never worked in social media but have are academics or have watched what has taken place and the problems. Uh, I, I would like point at the screen and be like, I cite them in my book. I cite them in my, it was like my, <laughs> it was like my book in documentary form. So if you're listening and you're like, Hey, what's Chris's book going to be about? Just watch the documentary. It's a pretty good <laughs> preview. Um, so anyway, the, the whole bit, the whole documentary is all about the wide ranging negative effects social media is having on us from the disinformation that we all are led to believe because uh, these algorithms have kind of conditioned us to believe whatever we see across our timelines, all the way down to like data privacy and the fact that none of us are concerned about the fact that these platforms are literally fueled by the data that they harvest from our internet activity. And I think it does a, I think there are some weaknesses to the documentary, but I think overall it does a really good job of presenting us with the problem that the social internet and the social internet, I, I'm really trying to train people to think of the internet as the social internet and social media as more than just the apps that you look at on your phone. Because like Google is a part of this, even though you don't see Google as a social media platform. Because every time you Google something, Google's harvesting not only that that question you asked and and using that to learn more about you, but it's hard it's it's taking how you ask that question and how you phrase that question and trying to figure out how to sell you things based on so anyway the social the main problem that the documentary addresses is the social internet is built upon a revenue generating system that uses attention and engagement as its fuel and it generates a toxic byproduct of manipulation so the entire internet it's often said if if it's free you're the product uh, and that's kind of that's that's kind of true, um, but honestly, it's kind of worse than that. Uh, we are not the product because the the idea is that the that the advertisers are actually the customers. We aren't the customers, um, and it that is true. But we are not the product. It's it's kind of worse than that. Our data is the product, and uh, a lot of advertisers or these platforms kind of want us to just get out of the way and and let them harvest our data, learn things about us. They don't care what our hopes and dreams are. They just care about what we want to purchase or how we may want to vote or things like that. And I think the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which if if you're listening here and you take anything away from all of this conversation, um, go watch that documentary sometime this weekend. It's an hour and a half and it's very compelling, I think. I've heard from a lot of friends who don't usually care about social media stuff that I talk about, uh, and uh, this has been really compelling to them. So I would encourage you to to watch, but I think the main thing to get from it is we all just need to be aware that the platforms on which we look at family photos or watch funny cat videos or do things that seem very innocent and boring or funny – are actually affecting the way we think and the way we relate to each other, the purchases we make, um, and and really warping our worldview in ways we don't realize. And I think um, it's hard to look beyond the surface because you just you scroll on Facebook and you come across that funny video, that heartwarming video of a soldier coming home to his family, and you're just like, man, this is great, isn't it? And you don't really think about the fact that. Um, you, because you stopped and you're watching that cat video, now Facebook knows you may be interested in cats and maybe they'll so, pitch you some ad. <laughs> so can I ask you a question? Of course. What if I wanted to tell Facebook, like I wanted to say to them, look, if you want to date my data, you're going to have to take me to dinner first. Like is, it, yeah. like, is there a way to get on the other side of this um, without just simply shutting off social media altogether? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the short answer is not really, but there are steps you can take. And I would encourage you probably, ironically, just to Google this because I don't have time to walk yeah, yeah. everyone through step by step. But there are steps you can take within your Facebook like profile settings, like mm -hmm. if you go to settings on Facebook, where you can restrict the data that Facebook can access. Now, what we don't really know is are switching off all of those uh, options of data privacy in the Facebook options really like pressing the walk button at the crosswalk uh, where maybe you're switching those things off and Facebook isn't really honoring your request. We don't know because here's the thing. We can't hold Facebook accountable. That in a year, in a year, Facebook could say, oh, all those data privacy restriction options we gave you, we actually forgot to make them work. Sorry, we'll fix that. Like, because they've done things like that repeatedly throughout their history. Um, they just happen to make mistakes that that positively affect their advertisers more than their users. And so I think we should all just be aware of that, take the steps we can, but understand that ultimately they get to run the world. And unless you log off, you're kind of just living in it. All right. If you want to know more about what Chris Martin has to say about this very recent ruling by the U.S. House of Representatives ruling Facebook as a monopoly uh, and what happens next, check out his terms of service uh, site termsofservice.substack.com or you can just google chris martin he's chris martin 17 you're looking for terms of service chris um thank you as always so much if we had more time um i would ask you those friends who don't want to talk about all this stuff with you what do they want to talk about because that yeah, would have been sure. an interesting conversation so maybe we'll get to that uh curious question the next time hey thanks for joining us thanks have a great weekend we'll be right back Okay, so a Nobel uh, Prize was was given, awarded. It it heightens our awareness of um, food insecurity around the world and how many hungry people there are. So I just wanted to highlight that. The UN's World Food Program, one of the largest humanitarian organizations in the world, was awarded the 2020 Nobel Prize this morning. Um, I guess I just want to ask in the face of that, who do you know who is hungry, who needs shelter or comfort um, one simple act of kindness today could go a long way to encourage another person. And remember, when we're talking about the Nobel Peace Prize, you and I are the people who are intended to be sowing peace into the world. We are the peacemakers. We are the people of God. We are the ambassadors of a king and a kingdom whose prince is the very prince of peace. So go out there today. You may not win an award, but uh, bless somebody. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.